You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Greetings, fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library, and welcome back to the Steve Donahue Show, where we discuss bookish news, views, and reviews with the hopeful optimism that comes so naturally at the start of a weekend. For this Friday podcast, I thought I'd briefly discuss a bit of bookish news. Here in the U.S., the National Book Awards announced the nonfiction long list for this year, 10 books on a wide variety of subjects. Um... I don't know quite how to put this. 2020 has been, by and large, the apocalypse year for me and major literary awards. Uh, everywhere in the awards world, there's been not so much an increase as a veritable invasion of Twitter-fueled politics, an infusion of social moralizing. In 2020, more than in any previous year, book awards have seemed to say, look, it's not that we don't care as much about literary excellence in our, excellence in our choices, is that we no longer care at all about literary excellence in our choices. The question isn't, is this book any good? The question is, does this book's author come from an ethnic or social group that has ever in its history been repressed by white people? And woe betide any judge and committee member or ordinary civilian who might raise their hand and say, but what difference does that make? Surely it's our job as literary prize to prize literary merit. Such a person might not even make it out of the boardroom alive social media-wise, anyway, uh, the result has been a book award long list that are concerned with only one thing, unctuously, condescendingly trying to make the rest of us better people, trying to save us from the wrong side of history, trying to use the South Brooklyn Book Awards to redress the evils of the Senegalese Civil War. You white people are all hopelessly racist, sexist, and classist, these awards seem to be saying in a compassionate but tired voice. But we'll do what we can to lift you up into the light. <laughs> in South Boston, back in the 1950s, we had a very direct and pithy response to this kind of condescension. And there's a reason why whenever I mention South Boston in the 1950s, my producer holds up his don't say it sign. <laughs> Our response back then isn't suitable for the civilized precincts of the Cedarburg Public Library. But that response is nevertheless entirely justified. In fact, it might be too gentle. Whenever I've encountered a book prize list of this type, exclusively drawn from tiny backstreet publishers, for instance, because the big five are, of course, mere witless tools of the heteronormative patriarchy, and featuring only female, non-cis, non-white authors, because all other writers are, of course, mere witless tools of gynonormative oppressor, uh, I've always had the same reaction. If I need personal moral instruction, I'm not going to go to the book publishing industry any more than I'm going to look to Hollywood. And if I want to lecture on my lax social morality, I'll go to St. Patrick's Cemetery and dig up me sainted ma and get one from her, from the master. Thank you very much. This hijacking of all awards by personal social agendas and the, the concomitant fascist intolerance for dissent has, in my not-so-humble opinion, rendered most major awards all but useless as barometers of either literary worth or the popularity of the books they're putting forward. These lists are designed not to honor, but to lecture. And that means they're not worth my time or yours. Which might make it seem strange that I'm wanting to talk to you today about the National Book Awards nonfiction long list. But the good news is 
But this ideological rot hadn't yet gone all the way through all parts of the industry. Even the most hijacked awards list, I found, will still have books on it that are not only progressive in outlook and subject matter, but that are actually good as, you know, books. <laughs> this National Book Awards nonfiction list is a good example. It's a very strong list, and today I wanted to highlight a few books on it that are very much worth your time. The first of these is a book I've praised on this podcast before, Isabel Wilkerson's Cast, The Origins of Our, of Our Discontents. In this book, Wilkerson looks at how the society-wide phenomenon of caste, as opposed to more specific scenario-driven bigotries, can be really useful in understanding the sheer persistence of discrimination in modern societies whose young people unfailingly recognize discrimination for the evil that it is. Wilkerson looks at caste systems in a number of societies, including, of course, India, and uses tremendous insight to apply those parallels to an examination of America's own systemic oppressions. This is one of the most important books of the year on a long, festering subject that's been thrust into the forefront of the news by months of demonstrations and riots. If you've sat watching the news footage of those events, do yourself a favor and read this book. Uh, our next book from the list is Unworthy Republic, The Dispossession of Native Americans and the Road to Indian Territory by Claudio Sant, uh, which is a study of President Andrew Jackson's infamous 1830 Indian Removal Act and both its deep origins in American corporate culture and its long after-effects in American society. Few of America's founding sins have a longer and stronger pedigree than the plight of the Native Americans who were brutalized, killed, and dispossessed so that white settlers could fill the United States. Cowboys and Indians, after all, raised many entire generations of those settlers' descendants. And Sant's terrific book is a very strong addition to the library of work studying that sin. Uh, up next is uh, what the National Book Awards website refers to as a cautionary tale. It's If Then, How the Simulatics Corporation Invented the Future by the great historian Jill Lepore, uh, who looks at the Simulatics Corporation, which was a, a technologized corporate research firm at the very dawn of what we now refer to as the computer era, uh, that espoused itself as taking the human-fueled guesswork out of data-driven uh, market and consensus analysis. And because of that marketing, it attracted a wide array of, uh, of clientele, including the Department of Defense, including DARPA, and including the Kennedy, the John F. Kennedy presidential campaign, uh, in, a, in a foreshadowing of Cambridge Analytica. That campaign wanted to know everything there was to know about the people who made up its likely constituents. The uh, limitation in Lepore's book, of course, is the thing she's most aware of and most eloquent about, which is that Simulatics was dealing with the, with, with the equivalent of stone knives and bearskins when it comes to data collection, which makes the book not only a fascinating historical subject, but also an incredibly prescient warning about the ways that ordinary people and uh, shadowy corporations, for different reasons, have for a while had an unhealthy yearning to be known as they are known, to be seen as they are seen, to have the, their data at other people's fingertips. So although on one hand, if then is a historical study set firmly in a time period, uh, it's also much more than that, as Jill Lepore's books tend to be. Uh, and since right now, when you're listening to me, 
you yourself are being listened to and having your data collected by who more than half a dozen items in your immediate surroundings, the book is more important than ever. It's uh, well worth your time to read. And we'll finish up with a treat, a work of natural history in the field, Owls in, of the Eastern Ice, A Quest to Find and Save the World's Largest Owl. This is a book by Jonathan Slate, uh, in which he goes to Russia uh, in, in order to interview everyone who has ever been involved in the study of Blakinson's fish owl, an absolutely enormous owl that is relegated to a relatively restricted natural habitat. Uh, Slate not only gives you a great natural history of that owl, its particulars, all that we know about it, but also great thumbnail portraits of all the people who have studied it, all the people in the environment who think the studying of it is a little weird because they've got uh, paying life <laughs> to, to uphold and whatnot. Uh, it's a slice of life and a broad popular scientific natural history in a combination that plenty of people do well, and this is a fine example of that. So as a way to escape from virtually all of the world's current problems, except for catastrophic climate change, which is playing a part in endangering the fish owl. Uh, you really can't do better uh, than owls of the eastern ice. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign off with just those recommendations. There are there are plenty of others. Like I mentioned, this National Book Awards, uh, National Book Awards long list was a very good list. There's hardly a dud on it. Uh, that won't be true for the fiction list. <laughs> the fiction list will be exactly the kind of Twitter-fueled political nightmare that I opened by talking about. And maybe we'll talk about that next week. But I thought we'd end on a sunny note. <laughs> it's been a fairly gloomy week. Uh, with four books that I heartily recommend. So, uh, pester your officials at the Cedarburg Public Library to get a few copies in. Uh, or, if you're feeling flush, go to your bookstore. The author would very much like it if you bought a copy of these books, if they sound interesting to you. Uh, and I will wrap up this episode of the podcast here, and I will return on Monday with whole new bunches of things to talk about and complain about. <laughs> Thank you, fellow patrons. The Steve Donahue Show is a production of CPL Radio, a service of the Cedarburg Public Library located in Cedarburg, Wisconsin.